Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. And welcome to State of the Bay. I'm your guest host for the evening, Joe Eskenazi. Ethan Elkind and Grace Wan are off for the night, but you'll hear Ethan later in the hour interviewing David Roach, the co-founder and director of the Oakland International Film Festival. We will also hear from the Wall Street Journal reporter and author Catherine Blunt about her new book, California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric, and What It Means for America's Power Grid. But first, is San Francisco's legendary fog disappearing? Fog is a companion, part of the rhythm of summertime, Flitting in and out of lives like a family member, writes New York Times reporter and Bay Area resident John Branch in his new article, The Elusive Future of San Francisco's Fog. Fog is divisive here in San Francisco. Mark Twain apocryphally had words to say about this, but in many ways it defines our city. Photographers capture images of the Golden Gate Bridge engulfed in fog. Shorts-wearing tourists huddle in the fleece sweaters they purchased out of necessity at Fisherman's Wharf. Residents of the sunset treasure the days they can make out the Farallons. But many residents and scientists are concerned that San Francisco's fog is disappearing. And in his recent New York Times story, John Branch investigates whether this may be true and what the disappearance of fog may mean for California's coastal ecosystems and San Francisco's economy and identity. Welcome to State of the Bay, John Branch. Hello, Joe. Nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, John, whenever there's a story in the Times about San Francisco bagels or San Francisco housing or San Francisco anything, my first impulse is, oh, no, cultural jury duty. I have to read a story about San Francisco that ran in the New York Times. But I'm glad I did this time, this time, because this is a spectacular feature, both in reporting and craft. Uh, Fog feels ubiquitous here in San Francisco, though maybe not for long, and we'll get to that. Um, I'm wondering what led you to write this piece now. Well, um, actually, it came up a couple of years ago. I live in Novato, so I live just outside the main fog bank, but I get the uh, the wonderful effects of the fog. I don't have air conditioning, for example, at my house. I get to see it um, when I when I wake up in the morning and I see the fog is on the hills. I sometimes put on my running shoes and I want to run up into the fog. So I have this kind of infatuation for it. And a couple of years ago, I mentioned to our climate editor that I think fog is uh, one of those meteorological things and climatological things that we haven't really explored before. And it certainly means something here in the Bay Area. And so I got the green light this spring to um, to investigate what fog means here and and what's happening to it and what that pretends for the future. Well, I'm glad you did this because I didn't really even think about this until I read your article, but we know so little about fog. I'm wondering why that is and why it's so hard to predict. Yeah, I mean, fog, it's awesome, right? Um, it, it, it's, as it should be, it's hard to grasp. It's hard to, to for scientists even to understand it. There aren't a lot of records over or about fog. Um, you know, the, a lot of the records that scientists use to, to figure out the history of fog come from things like airport control towers, which is not a very exact science. It's somebody in a control tower saying, yeah, it's foggy today, this hour, or I can see a half a mile, or I can see a mile, Um, you know, some ship records. But there's no gauge for fog. It's not like temperature or wind or humidity or anything else. And as we all know from living here, it can be, we can be in the fog one minute and out of it the next. Um, It's just really hard to grasp. And for that reason, we can't even really figure out how much fog there's been in the past exactly, 
And so trying to extrapolate that and figure out what's going to happen in the future is really, really tricky. Yeah, I'm wondering about that because one of the major contentions is that it it appears that it's not as foggy as it used to be, both in San Francisco and, and most everywhere else. And I'm wondering... How well established is that, and and how do we even measure it? As you mentioned, there's there's not really like a Fahrenheit or Celsius battle here. Yeah, so there have been various methods, and I, and I think the this most seminal, somewhat recent um, research came from Todd Dawson, who teaches over at UC Berkeley, and he was actually studying the redwoods, and then you know in late nineties he um, realized that the redwoods get about a third of their water content, their water needs from fog not from the rain in the winter, but from the fog in the summer. And years later, he wanted to kind of figure out how much, um, how the fog was changing or if it had changed. And so he did use airport observations from all of Northern California and Central California along the coast, everything from Arcata down to Monterey and Oakland and Petaluma, big airports, small airports. And that data goes back to about 1950. Um, when the airports were really um, starting up. And he found and concluded that fog since 1950 until about ni- until 2010 had decreased by about a third. Uh, that certainly freaked a lot of people out around here back in 2010. And there have been a few um, researchers who have tried to tackle this since then. The last 20 years, actually, since about the turn of the century to now, it seems to have leveled off. There are some. There is some research that shows that it is um, as foggy as ever out in the ocean. Um, but there's other research that shows, especially in Southern California, the effects of the um, heat island effect, which means that over pavement, over developed areas, there seems to be less fog, or the fog is lifted. I've heard from a lot of people in San Francisco that, that feel that that's the way it is here. Um, is that what used to be kind of ground level fog, now seems to be just higher. Um, just now low clouds. And so, again, these are all things that are really hard to measure. And so the, the science is scattered, and uh, there just seems to be a general sense that it's not going up. It's going down, if anything. Well, I'm from here, and I've always loved the fog, in part because of the schadenfreude for transplanted Los Angelinos. But as you <laughs> inferred there, this goes well beyond human preferences. If fog dwindles or even disappears, uh, you just noted and you wrote in your story very uh, eloquently and, and uh, horrifyingly, it could be catastrophic for some of the state's ecosystem. Uh, let me know, like, what are we talking about here? Yeah, I mean, if you can imagine redwoods, which need not only the water content from the fog, but also the cloud cover from the fog. If suddenly our coasts, where the redwoods um, have their homes, are now sudden, suddenly warmer or sunnier, um, less moist. I think most of us have been in the redwood forest in the middle of the summer where it's dripping on you. That's the fog effect, right? Not only is that um, uh, keeping alive and, and, a, and a huge source of, of water for the, the redwood forest, but the entire forest themselves, which means the lichens, the ferns, the newts. It keeps the creeks moist enough to keep salmon through the summer. Um, all those things change if suddenly there's no fog. And you can say the same thing about, you know, the coastal environment, what it would do to dunes and, um, you know, maybe some of the things that aren't quite the iconic species that we think of when we think about redwoods. Um, you know, what would it do then to temperatures here, um, to plants, for example, up in the Napa Valley, to grapes, what would it do down to the Salinas Valley? What kind of crops would be different if there wasn't fog, if there wasn't cooling at night, if there wasn't that kind of cloud cover? It would change all of that. 
And then you start talking about humans, and I don't mean to jump ahead here, but you start talking about humans. What would it mean for all those of us who don't have air conditioning? If suddenly now we need air conditioning, what does that do to power grids, um, which we already have a big problem with? So if you extrapolate this forward, this life without fog would just change everything for us. Yeah, I mean, um, when you're and, talking and then, about the, the redwood trees. That's the, that's the biggest domino. Uh, yeah, that's the biggest domino. You're talking not about a small change. You're talking about a, a cataclysmic, complete reshaking of California's ecosystem. Yeah. How fast uh, could that you happen? Are. Well, nobody knows because they actually think that maybe the last 20 years has been okay. You know, the big question now, and and the the other sort of going back on on the the root of fog, is that there's so many different variables that affect fog. It it all starts out with the North Pacific High out in the water, and the North Pacific High moves its way up the coast in the spring and then parks itself off of our coast in the summer. And that's just a big high-pressure system. And with climate change, the sense is that that moves around. It's much more variable now. And with that high-pressure system, which typically then blows clockwise and typically then pushes winds up against the, the coast, which then typically <laughs> causes some upwelling, which causes water from deep in the uh, along the coastal waters to come up. That's colder water, and that helps create the fog. If all those systems, or if one of those systems gets out of balance, then we're not exactly sure what that would do to the fog. Um, some people think that you know, maybe if the water gets colder along the coast, we know that we know the oceans are warming. They're not even sure if the water along the coast is warming because of the California current and because of this North Pacific high. If they can't figure that out, it's really hard for them to predict the fog. You start changing then humidity levels and saturation levels and things like that, then and, and, and winds and everything else, then who knows what it does to fog. And then there's questions about it. I could just go on and on about this as if I know what I'm talking about because I'm not a scientist. But the um, you know, if the temperatures are different inland than they are along the coast, you know, I think a lot of us appreciate that what happens on a daily basis with the fog is that in the afternoons in the summer, the temperatures inland uh, uh, on the other side of, you know, uh, in, toward the Central Valley, when those temperatures really spike in the afternoon, that warm air rises. And what happens is that warm air rises, cold air rushes in to take its place. That basically sucks the fog in mm -hmm. through places like the Golden Gate. Uh, what happens if the temperatures inland start growing at a faster rate than they do coastally. Right now, the sense seems to be that coastal regions are growing faster, which might, might mean less of that sucking action. So maybe the fog is fine out in the ocean, but it's now, now it's not coming inland the way it does today. These are all things that scientists are really trying to figure out. The general sentiment, as, as we said, is both anecdotal and with a lot of research is that yeah, it's not probably going the right direction. Um, if only that, there were a metaphor a for opacity. Um, I just can't think yes, of it. Yes, exactly. But, exactly. Uh, but I mean, the way you describe it, there's just so many factors about something that we already don't understand much about. It, it, it's a little bit intriguing, but also maddening and, 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 as I mentioned, horrifying. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's all of those things. Um, and it's interesting because I, I think for a lot of us that live here, um, we know what the fog means to this area generally, although maybe we don't appreciate exactly what it means. And I think a lot of people around the world don't exactly know what it means. You know, the other tricky thing with fog is that there aren't a lot of people studying it because for us, for example, it's a pretty regional phenomenon. You know, there aren't, there aren't people in Texas studying fog. Um, so there aren't a ton of scientists that are looking into this, but they are doing it more and more as it becomes one of the great mysteries of, of climate change. And I'd meant to ask you about this. You know, I mean, this is an area, this is a region that we live in that's very much associated with fog. But 
Uh, is this really the foggiest place? I mean, Chicago is the windy city, but it's not even a top 25 windy city when you actually measure average wind speed. <laughs> is there, I mean, we've already talked about how it's difficult to measure this, but how foggy is San Francisco and the greater Bay Area compared to other parts of the country and the world? Yeah, so the Point Reyes Station, for example, where the lighthouse is, mm-hmm. um, is considered, and they will say that they are the second foggiest place on the continent. Um, there's a place in Nova Scotia that supposedly has more fog, but the Point Reyes Lighthouse gets, by their measure, at least 200 days of fog every year. Um, the, the phenomenon I mentioned about the North Pacific High is not unique to us, that the West Coast of most continents have a similar fog sort of system. So off the coast of South America, for example, Chile and Peru, off the coast of, of the west coast of Africa, there are places that have these same kinds of systems and have the same sort of weather effects in the summer. I just don't think there's a place that impacts more people because most of these places are, are pretty remote. Um, and I certainly don't think there's a place that um, identifies with the fog like San Francisco does. Why do you think that is, John? Why do you think that the fog is such an integral part of San Francisco's image? Well, I think if you reverse engineer that question and think, what is San Francisco without the fog? And, you know, we've talked about environmentally what that might mean. But I think culturally, too. And, you know, I'm not one of those who lives in the middle of the fog. But if, you know, if you're somebody who lives in the sunset and you think, what is what is life like here without fog? Like, isn't that part of who we are? Don't we all love Carl? I can't tell you how many messages I got about Carl. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I just think you're you're just missing an ingredient. And I'll let, you know, sociologists or maybe uh, San Francisco locals discuss that. I certainly have a lot of friends in the city who either love the fog or hate the fog. Um, but we all have opinions about it. And I think, uh, you know, like, uh, as I mentioned in the story, it's like a family member. I think, you know, we we love them, we hate them. They, they're in and out of, out of our lives. Um, I think we'd miss them if they were gone. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, moving to San Francisco and not liking the fog is like moving to New York and not liking dirty water hot dogs or moving to Boston and not liking getting hit by a car. I mean, it's uh, it's just one of those amazing things. I'm wondering, what do you feel about it? It's, I mean, I detect from your uh, – at the outset of the interview, you said you can't wait to go run into the fog. What's your personal relationship with fog? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a bit infatuated with it. Um, visually, I think it's stunning. I have a, a habit of jumping on Google and looking up um, – time-lapse videos of fog in the Bay Area. Some of them are like overnight videos of, you know, slow motion or just time-lapse of the fog pouring in over, say, the shoulder of Mount Tam, for example, or pouring through, as, as Hurricane called them, the, the harp strings of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I think it's just beautiful to look at, and uh, it's kind of a drug to me. Um, it's just a great weather. We don't get a lot of weather here, like right? And I grew up in Colorado where we get these crazy storms. We have tornadoes in the plains. We get crazy thunderstorms in the summer. We get big snowstorms. And so I think fog is the closest thing I get to being like, oh, this is kind of nutty and different and fun. And so I love being in it. I love running in it. I love getting caught in it. I love driving across the bridge and just having it whip across. And I love laughing at the tourists. It just brings me joy. And of course, I can drive away and, and not live in it. So maybe I'm the wrong person to ask. Well, let me ask, where where uh, do you suggest for the fog connoisseurs of the Bay Area, where are the best places to observe fog? Yeah, um, I'm partial because I live on this side of the bridge uh, to the Marin Headlands. You know, you can see out to the sea, you can see the Golden Gate, you can watch it go across, um, you know, Sausalito and across Angel Island and, and Alcatraz and, and and swallow up the city lights, everything but Sutro Tower. I think that's the, the best place to watch it. 
Fantastic. And your your Twitter bio says that you're the guy who likes to write the stories that we didn't know we needed to read. And you certainly accomplished that with this one. Um, and I mean that uncynically. What's next? I've got a few projects going on. Um, I do a lot of outdoor adventure kinds of stories. So I think I have a pretty epic one on the horizon here. And um, everything's a little bit different. I, I'm a sports writer by trade, but I... Um, a pretty bad excuse for a sports writer, as you can tell by me doing things like fog and uh, some outdoor adventure stories. I don't know, man. I thought that the story about the retired hockey enforcer was pretty good too, man. Well, I appreciate that very much. Well, John, it's it's a real pleasure to talk to you about any meteorological phenomenon, and uh, and really, it was quite a pleasure to read this story, both uh, in subject matter and in craft. Uh, a real proper feature, and uh, and just a, a thrill from beginning to end. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that very much. And and one other thing I'd love to say is we, I had a couple of great colleagues, including Nina Riggio, who lives here, a photographer who um, really added to this. And so I would encourage people who might see this in print later this week. It's online now. And the online versions are wonderful because this is fog and there's a lot of movement. And so there's lovely videos and photos and some really, really crazy good graphics that go along with this. So um, I don't know about the writing. I don't know if that's any good, but it's it's lovely to look at. Well, I appreciate your making the plug uh, and picking me up where I fell off, but now we're going to have to fade off into the mist. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me, John Branch of the New York Times. Thank you. And we will move from fog to something more combustible. Coming up next on State of the Bay, the decline and fall of Pacific gas and electric. And we are going to take your questions, and that's right after a short break. But first, KALW brings you stories that you can't find anywhere else. That's an important distinction when you think about all the information you have access to. On public radio, you're hearing stories and conversations that make you stop and think, and sometimes even change your view of the world. It's why you listen, and it's a great reason to invest in KALW right now. Give now at KALW.org or 800-525-9917. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm your guest host tonight, Joe Eskenazi. The campfire began on November 8th, 2018, just three days after energy reporter Catherine Blunt joined the Wall Street Journal. The wildfire, California's deadliest to date, killed 85 people and destroyed nearly 19,000 structures, including the town of Paradise. California's Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, was ultimately found responsible for the campfire and multiple other California wildfires and the San Bruno gas pipeline explosion and numerous counts of involuntary manslaughter. In her new book, California Burning, the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid, Catherine Blunt shares the utility's history and its failures. While Blunt reveals how years of prioritizing profits and politics over public safety led to PG&E's eventual downfall, she cautions that PG&E's failure isn't just California's story. It is in many ways a harbinger of challenges to come as climate change exacerbates the vulnerability of the grid. And tonight, in the midst of a historic drought with wildfires burning in both northern and southern California, a European energy crisis looming and much of Oakland in the dark. Author and journalist Catherine Blunt joins me to tell PG&E's story. Welcome to State of the Bay, Catherine Blunt. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is such a thrill. Uh, and we are also going to open up the phone lines early to hear from you, the listeners. Are you a PG&E customer? What are your thoughts about the company? Have you lost a home or property in a wildfire caused by PG&E? If so, 
Have you been compensated? Please give us a call. You may not have read Ms. Blunt's book, but I have, and it's abundantly clear she could answer most any reasonable question you could ask. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or send us a message on Twitter at State of the Bay, or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Catherine, I don't know how to say this, but I've never read a book that's so dense yet so compelling. You go into fantastic detail in courtrooms or 100-year-old boardrooms, but I found myself reading through it at breakneck speed because it was so rich and interesting. Your book goes back a long way to PG&E's inception and its growth to a Goliath and then the California deregulation fiasco a generation ago. And my question is, as you meticulously researched this book, are there inflection points where you thought, if only PG had done A instead of B, things would be different now? Or does the way the energy market runs inherently lead us to where we are? Yeah, no, it's a, well, first of all, thank you. I'm so glad that you did find it to be compelling in that way. Um, I think there's a lot of junctures in which, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it became very clear that there were, you know, several, uh, numerous decisions that ultimately resulted in in disaster. But it's it's a bit hard to sort of um, pinpoint exactly where those places are, because I think what the book documents is that the disasters that you were just referring to are the result of tiny decisions made incrementally over you know a, a long span of time, which makes it a little bit difficult in that regard. But certainly, as many listeners know, the, the campfire um, that killed 84 people ignited when a very tiny hook broke nearly in half. And you know you have to wonder, at, at what point could there have been a decision to do more to look at these little pieces of hardware? Something that I thought of when I was reading your book is it felt to me like the seeds of PG&E's destruction were planted right when it became a giant, when it obtained all of these other companies and their uh, hardware, for lack of a better term, uh, kind of sight unseen. And then it also seems PG&E was horribly crippled by deregulation and suddenly the profit motive was there to make more and more money and maybe not look at some of these things. Uh, those are two of the biggest factors, I guess. And, and correct me if I'm if I'm oversimplifying it. What what else you know shifted this into uh, a no win scenario that we find ourselves in today? Yeah, I think that's a that's a very reasonable summary of of num- a n- number of the challenges that the company faced. Of course, it did in- inherit some of this incredibly old infrastructure that it had no role in building. I think that the uh, deregulation push does mark the point in which you begin to see a real focus on delivering to Wall Street. But there's also um, a couple of other factors at play here. For one, you know, the risk profile of PG&E's service territory changed very quickly in a very short period of time um, as a result of numerous periods of very severe drought, um, similar to what we're experiencing right now. Tens of millions of trees died and made the consequence of a single spark from a single faulty power line higher than it had been historically. And another challenge, and it's really you know, sadly ironic, is that, of course, California has been a, a real pioneer in procuring a lot of wind and solar power for a long time. And the utilities, PG&E and others, played a very large role on this in this, um, beginning around 2005. Um, and, you know, of course, wind and solar are some of the cheapest forms of generation we see today. They were not back then. So the company was spending a lot on this procurement, and that added an additional layer of expense pressure that, um, you know, affected their decision-making over time. Now, you have very extensive descriptions of PG&E's lack of adequate record-keeping to the point where it gave me anxiety just even thinking about it. Uh, and can you tell our listeners an idea of what's missing and, and why it's so anxiety-inducing? 
Right, right. So, you know, PG&E is hardly the only utility with poor records. Uh, record keeping, when you think about, I mean, records in, are the, in some ways the lifeblood of, of a utility company, but, I mean, they produce millions and millions of pieces of paper. So retaining them over the course of decades and organizing them effectively or digitizing them in systems that are usable across the organization is a very difficult task. Um, and over time, you know, it, it, unfortunately for PG&E and also for other utilities, it has taken true disaster to, real the, to reveal the extent of the problem and, and what is missing and whether it's hard to access or, or, you know, all kinds of different questions. After the San Bruno explosion in 2010, the company took over Cal Palace south of San Francisco to really centralize all the, you know, millions of pages of hard copy documents they had stored all throughout the different places in the system to comb through it and to try to figure out, you know, first of all, were there risks that they'd been missing, but also what was missing in terms of, in terms of records. And then after the campfire, um, the company tried to pull all the records that it had on the transmission tower that failed, and it ultimately had very little. And it didn't have, you know, records of the uh, specific hook that failed and ignited the fire. Um, the company was able to make an educated guess on its age and where it came from, but it, it didn't have that original documentation. So, I mean, that's an interesting lens through which to view the huge challenge of keeping track of all the stuff that's produced on these assets over really long periods of time. I mean, the Cal Palace is a wonderfully uh, uh, flexible building, hosting Renaissance fairs and, and minor league hockey and uh, college basketball and uh, uh, emergency record keeping for uh, utilities that uh, blow up the neighboring town. <laughs> uh, what I'm wondering here is, is, is at what point does skimping on maintenance uh, in order to maximize profits, as PG&E did, when does it shift from negligence to something more sinister in your view? Right, right. So this is um, this is a this is a difficult question, and it has been a real challenge to answer for every prosecutor that's you know gone after the company after various disasters over the last you know ten plus years. Um, the thing about this is, so PG&E at this point has been twice convicted on charges of failing to safely maintain its infrastructure. It faced charges of violating the Federal Pipeline Safety Act after the San Bruno explosion and it faced 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter for each of the deaths resulting from the campfire. And in both cases, the prosecutors found that the co- that employees within the company had knowledge of risks throughout the system and knew they weren't doing enough to address them. Um, but there, it's when you think about the culture of a you know, company of this nature, decision-making is, is very diffuse and in some ways decentralized. Um, a lot of people have different roles in determining how uh, inspections and and maintenance are conducted. And so in neither case were prosecutors able to determine, you know, that that the accident were the fault of, you know, one person or even several people. Um, They they basically determined it it was the result of some sort of systemic breakdown in which every employee had some role to play but didn't bear direct culpability. And so um, this was really evident, actually, after the San Bruno explosion. The company ultimately went to trial over those charges, and the trial was a really interesting exploration of this very sort of weird and nebulous idea of corporate liability. And so it's a, it's a really important question to try to understand, and it's also a very complex one. And I'm going to remind everyone, you can get a hold of us at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Twitter is at State of Bay. 
And email is stateofthebay at K-A-L-W dot O-R-G. And you mentioned San Bruno, uh, which is a day I will never personally forget because uh, initial news reports said that it was a plane crash and I was on my way to pick up my wife at the airport. Uh, so <laughs> comparatively, wow. I was very lucky, but that was a very stressful um, hour or so. Uh, never did I imagine, however, that San Bruno would be the mere appetizer to PG&E's destructive feast. And I'm wondering, uh, we've talked about inflection points. Do you feel that there's anything that could have been done in 2010 uh, or thereabouts that could have uh, precluded the fire, wildfires or, or was the train leaving the station at that point? You know, it's a... Uh... I think it's it's difficult to say what effect this would have had, but one thing that did occur after San Bruno was, um, you know, new leaders came in and did a pretty significant overhaul of the way the gas division operated to try to get at the heart of some of these problems that were, you know, resulting in the the sort of systemic neglect that became apparent as a result of the explosion. Um, they brought in some, you know, outside experts to evaluate sort of the state of play immediately after the explosion, brought them back in again to see um, whether their improvements were sufficient in the eyes of these third parties. And these um, you know, new gas division executives suggested to colleagues in the electric division that maybe they do a similar sort of overhaul, right? Maybe they do a similar sort of evaluation. And the electric division employees said, this is not necessary. Um, and it's, that's different than saying we don't want to, but they simply said they, they, they believed that the, what they were doing was sufficient. And I think it's sort of, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the first indication of a mindset that's really not going to hold as we see new risks emerge, partially as a result of climate change, partially a result of more severe weather, more severe drought, you know, heightening consequences of equipment failure. Um, because as these new risks emerge, it really does beg the question, is what you're doing sufficient and are you sure? So I think that that's one example. You know, that disaster didn't prompt the same sort of introspection across the entire company. It was almost as if they had siloed responses to what was a more universal problem. And I'm wondering, I don't know if you know this, uh, but through your reporting, and, and I wouldn't want you to speculate, do you believe that they honestly felt that they were doing enough? Or do you believe that they felt that this level of rigor would, uh, would reveal things they'd rather not reveal? Right. I mean, there, there may always be a, a, a little bit of that sentiment. I think that they probably did think that they were doing enough. And to the extent they knew there were places that they could improve, I think it was the practical matter of not having the money to sufficiently do it. And I don't think that many people within the division recognized what the ultimate consequences of that would be for a lot of different reasons. I mean, for example, the part that uh, failed, the hook that failed and, uh, and initiated the campfire, I believe that you wrote it was, uh, it was from the World War I era. Is yeah. there a best practices for replacing things like this in the, in the uh, utilities world? Well, there's certainly best practices for inspecting. And, and over time, the company reduced both the frequency and the thoroughness of uh, its inspections of its transmission lines in the Sierra foothills. And, and those particular lines are some of the oldest within the system. Um, the hook that failed was purchased around 1919 and hung in the tower for nearly 100 years, wearing down little by little with every windstorm. But within the 20 years preceding the fire, the inspection practices that the company had in place were simply insufficient for evaluating the state of the tiny pieces of hardware, hooks and other things. 
And, um, you know, I mean, I mean, this is, it's a very complicated area and I, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but I mean, more thorough inspections cost money because they take time, especially when you've got these lines in like the very remote parts of the state. Um, it's hard to access. And so, you know, every hour counts in this way and they were really trying to, um, you know, do more to quote unquote improve efficiency, but ultimately a lot was lost in the process. And, and they don't make them like that anymore. I believe you wrote that this was uh, made in an antiquated style that was uh, outdated even shortly thereafter, 1919. And it was a part that cost 59 cents, I believe you wrote. Uh, yeah, there's, that's, the, that's the best guess. And it was made of um, uh, malleable cast iron, which um, pretty shortly after malleable cast iron parts are made, uh, much of the industry switched to forged steel. So, yeah, it was... Um, I mean, the, this was built around the time when transmission itself, you know, carrying high voltage power over long distances was still sort of experimental. It is, it is of that era. Is there any kind of estimate on how many 59 cent hooks there were in PG&E's arsenal there? That's hard to say, but I, it became clear after the campfire that the, the hook that broke was not an anomaly. There were other very old um, components found you know, on that transmission line and others in the vicinity that were that were just as old. Well, let me take a jump up here to something that is within the uh, uh, memories of many of our listeners, and that's uh, California's deregulation fiasco from the early 2000s. Uh, I remember this just in being grumpy at paying bills, and I didn't give it much thought, but uh, PG&E really wasn't the villain in that one. I, I didn't know until I, you know, revisited this by reading your book. Um, PG&E is really such a convenient uh, villain uh, now that uh, other entities can kind of push things onto their plate. But uh, can you describe to me and to the re- to the listeners, sorry, I'm a print guy, uh, how exactly did PG&E uh, weather through that and what state were they left in uh, after the deregulation crisis? What exactly happened to them and left them digging right, out? Right, right. So the deregulation crisis, enormously complicated, but really what happened was the state of California implemented a new or uh, attempted to create a new market for wholesale power. So power generated by power plants. Back then it was largely natural gas plants um, and some others. And what what happened was utilities uh, would buy the power from these wholesale power producers in the competitive market. And then um, they would deliver it to customers and they would collect money from customers. And that um, what they were allowed to recoup in that way was um, at a set price. They couldn't um, collect more than this sort of, um, um, yeah. So anyway, so wholesale power prices spiked as a result of supply shortages and market manipulation. Ultimately, the companies were paying more for wholesale power than they could collect from customers. They wound up with a lot of debt. PG&E sought bankruptcy for the first time. And uh, to deal with uh, these, you know, the, the large amount of debt that it had incurred. And when it emerged... Um, it really was intense on reestablishing itself with Wall Street, regaining the goodwill of shareholders. And at that point, you begin to see an effort in which earnings growth is very much a priority. And in order to achieve that, it starts cutting expenses that would later um, turn out to be you know, the wrong choice because the, the, the cuts were such that safety was compromised. There was, there was not. You're not impressing Wall Street by replacing the hundred-year-old fifty-nine cent uh, uh, cast iron hooks. 
You're not. And it, I mean, the simple reason for that is that utilities make money on large capital investments that improve the overall value of their systems. They do not make money on day-to-day operations and maintenance expenses, such as replacing hooks, such as doing super long and thorough inspections and things of that nature. Let me let me make sure that we get to uh, the very uh, portentous subhead of your book, which is, you know, uh, the America's energy grid. Uh, PG&E is in a pickle. And we'll get into explaining exactly what the hole is they have to dig out of. But but how does this go beyond California and beyond your power bill in mind? How does this affect the rest of the country? Absolutely. So I think across the country, we are beginning to see – well, there's, there's a few things to keep in mind. We're talking about how old PG&E's infrastructure is. Uh, the grid is old across the entire country. You know, transmission lines in particular, a lot of them were built – around World War II or just afterward to support that massive population growth. Some of them were built even prior to that. And because of the grid's age, it is becoming more vulnerable to failure. Layer on top of that, more severe weather events exacerbated by climate change. Um, Just think about the number of really sort of strange and memorable things we saw in 2021, you know, not least the Texas freeze uh, in which, you know, millions of people were without power for days. Um, A lot of deaths resulted from that. Um, you know, strange you know, spates of storms in areas that haven't been as storm-prone, you know, uncommonly strong hurricane knocking out all the transmission lines serving New Orleans. Um, of course, heat wave across the West, constraining power supplies here. So these utilities across the country are having to deal with both the need to um, replace aging infrastructure, bolster it for a new era of demand as we add more electric vehicles and things like that, you know, lay on layer on top of that weather and climate risk. And, you know, it becomes clear that, um, you know, a, a backward looking risk model really isn't appropriate anymore. Um, there's there more needs to be done to evaluate what what should be done to prepare for, a, frankly, a very uncertain future. And so I think the PG&E's experience demonstrates that if a company has a history of mismanaging risk or mismanaging spending, that confronting these really complex challenges, um, you know, hard to model, hard to prepare for, is only going to become more difficult. And, you know, infrastructure failure at this point, failure of the electric grid, is very consequential. I mean, maybe in the, on the East Coast, it doesn't result in catastrophic fire, but it results in a days-long outage, right, at a time when we're becoming more reliant on electricity. Um, already, you know, a lot of people rely on electricity for medical reasons. It clearly, you know, is a it's a um, big economic loss when the power goes out for a number of days. There's there's a lot of different consequences to consider. Indeed, we have a question from one of our listeners who asks, "What responsibility does the Public Utilities Commission have for ignoring obvious mismanagement?" Absolutely, um, the California Public Utilities Commission has a large role to play in all of this. The PUC is tasked with overseeing the way the company spends money and the way that it maintains its system. But we, you know, we were talking earlier about the unfortunate irony of the fact that California's climate focus, in the sense of procuring more wind and solar power, um, ended up, you know, being somewhat of an expensive distraction for PG&E early on, uh, creating some unintended consequences. Um, kind of the same story for the California Public Utilities Commission within the division. When the when um, these you know ambitious climate targets or carbon reduction targets are being set 2005 2010 and onward, if you worked for the agency, you wanted to be part of the staff overseeing the procurement of those wind and solar contracts. That was the place to be. 
that, that division had the most resources, had the most cachet. Um, the safety division, meanwhile, was chronically really understaffed and underfunded for much of this time. And they simply didn't have the bandwidth to do the sorts of to have sort of meaningful safety oversight that would be necessary to get a real sense of what was going on within PG&E. I mean, you got some very revelatory emails in your book there about uh, how they talked about how much it would cost to properly run the division and how much they'd get, and there was a very big delta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, and that's another thing, too, is that there's constant tension over how much, so that the, the PUC oversees how much money pg e can collect from customers for various things, um, you know, by reviewing its so-called rate cases. And there's always tension, right, in terms of do you really need this much money, pg e to do this particular thing? And that's a very legitimate question to ask. Sometimes the answer is probably no, the company doesn't need that much money, but probably in, in other cases they do actually need the money to, to make the safety improvement, um, you know, regardless of the cost. And so it's that's definitely a, a, a tough balance to strike, and the PC has a role in that as well. Is pg e too big to fail? What options does the state of California have? Yeah, it's a. I, I think the I think the answer to that is in a, in a simple word, yes. It, it can't be allowed to fail because if it were to truly fail, failure in the most meaningful sense of the word, and that it couldn't continue to operate, it would be it would be an abject disaster. I mean, we've gotten a taste of it during some of the widespread, you know, public safety power shutoffs in which the power was out for multiple days. So think about October of 2019. It was, in, it was a total, it was an economic and a safety disaster all at once. Um, and uh, that anything longer than that would be demonstrably worse. Um, there's always conversations after these sorts of disasters as to whether it would be better if the state owned it or whether there's some other ownership structure that could help solve some of these problems. I don't think a change in ownership necessarily solves it, it by there's there's a there's a, you know, a philosophical argument to be had about reducing or eliminating the profit motive through public ownership or some other way but there's still major issues of you know just the sheer amount of money it's going to take to confront some of these risks throughout the system no matter who owns it and the fact that whoever owns it whether it's shareholders or whether it's the state of California uh, bear the liability costs of what seems to be inevitable failure at this point so it's um yeah, equipment failure. I mean, in this case, so it's a it's a very tough question to answer, and there's there's not really an obvious single solution. The solution, I think, is going to be you know a multitude of things. Now you are listening to KALW ninety one point seven FM. This is State of the Bay, and I'm Joe Eskenazi talking to Catherine Blunt uh, about PG and E. Uh, now. Public power was the mantra of San Francisco's political left for decades and decades uh, coming through the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Uh, And in 2019, this city did offer $2.5 billion to buy the city's power grid from PG&E, which uh, didn't go very far. How much would municipalization of power do for a city like San Francisco? And how much would we still be um, kind of, you know, a a cork in the ocean of of a larger system? Right, right. So PG&E's argument um, as to why this is not the preferred outcome for them is that if a dense population base defects from the system, the remaining customers are left with higher costs. And, I mean, when you think about it, it's most economic to serve the cities because you're collecting a lot of revenue per capita to maintain the infrastructure. 
Um, you contrast that with, for example, the transmission lines in the you know remote parts of the state, the ones that are very old. Um, those cost a lot to maintain and to inspect, and the you know the those living around them are contributing collectively less because it's it's you know it's not as uh, the area is not as populous, and so. Um, I think, you know, San Francisco is a little bit of a theoretical example because the city in and of itself is not very large, but I think the PG&E in pushing back against this is sort of considering the precedent that it would set. Um, to see different large cities within PG&E ser- service territory form their own municipal entities, it just it changes the economics of PG&E's um, way of doing things already. Clearly, that's very challenging. And, you know, PG&E over the years, I mean, obviously there are some problems related to the infrastructure serving San Francisco, but it has done a lot to make sure that that infrastructure is, generally speaking, much more reliable than some other parts of the city because the Bay Area is so important um, and having power to the Bay is is, is you know, very critical. When the lights go out, it's uh, it's very consequential. It's and where so, their headquarters are, yeah. That's where the, yeah, right, right. Um, so I call this the dryer's ice cream principle. You you put all the good stuff in the ice cream up at the top where the little window is. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. That's a that's a great that's a great analogy. Yeah. So that's uh, that's you know that's the state of play with municipalization. Well, it certainly seems like that's something that PG wouldn't want, but they never did. Uh, let me ask you one last question here, which is just, you know, we've got about two minutes, so this is an impossible thing. But but in two minutes, where does it all go from here? And and, and how much further can we go in the direction we're going before things just don't work anymore? Wh- wh- right. What are the trends? So there is a lot of little, um, I think that there's, I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking about, well, why don't we have more localized generation, you know, more rooftop solar, more people with batteries, you know, eliminating some of the need for this huge centralized infrastructure, you know, the big power lines carrying um, electricity over long distances, I think that's part of the solution um, to be able to sort of change the configuration of a, of a very risky system. The other thing that PG&E is doing is um, it's working to, t- to bury 10,000 miles of distribution wire because if the wires are underground, they can't start fires. Um, I think, you know, theoretically speaking, this certainly makes a lot of sense from a risk reduction standpoint. It's just going to be really... Um, critical to see how the company is able to manage the huge cost of doing that at a time when rates are very high, at a time when we're living through this you know, inflationary environment, um, and how quickly it can do that too, because of course, you know, there's, there's really not much time to, to lose at this point. Well, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it at that. Um, I, I guess it's not for nothing that uh, that people who uh, specialize in short uh, deals are buying up <laughs> PG&E stock. Right. Uh, <laughs> You know, always betting short against the planet. Uh, I'm sorry to leave it on that low note. Uh, I would like to leave it on a high note that uh, Catherine Blunt's coverage of PG&E was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting, and it earned a Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honor in business reporting. Uh, this is a really a remarkably thorough book and, uh, and very readable. Uh, congratulations, and thank you for joining us, Catherine Blunt, the energy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for having me. So please Google it. Go to your library, go to your bookstores, wherever you get books. California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric, and What It Means for America's Power Grid. Coming up after the break, we'll hear Ethan Elkine's interview with the co-founder and director of the Oakland International Film Festival. Please stay with us.
Back in 2018, Oakland had something of a Hollywood moment. The release and critical success of Blind Spotting, Sorry to Bother You, and Black Panther brought a spotlight to the city as a place where art and activism can intersect and thrive. But long before that moment in the sun, David Roach was doing his part to make film and filmmaking a part of the fabric of Oakland. In 1996, he co-founded the Oakland Film Society, which held its first Oakland International Film Festival in 2002. The 20th season of the Oakland International Film Festival opened last Thursday and runs through September 24th. So here to join us to talk about it is David Roach. Welcome to State of the Bay, David. Thank you so much for having me. Glad you can join us. So, David, tell me the story behind the Oakland International Film Festival. What motivated you to start it? It was um, being a filmmaker in 96. We shot a film called Sydney Bird, Private Eye in Oakland and San Francisco. And we were trying to sell our film. And so we would rent out theaters. We would go to different film festivals and attend different events. And in the process of it, our film was selected into some film festivals. And we were able to really enjoy some of the, of the perks of your film being at a film festival. And we really wanted to offer that type of event to the city of Oakland. Hmm. And how does it work with the process for selecting films for the festival? Do filmmakers come to you or do you go out and solicit entries? Are there guiding principles that you use to decide which films you're going to include? It's a combination of all the above. Sometimes films have been in other film festivals and have attained a certain level of notoriety. And then sometimes we just look for films that, you know, are true to, to the Oakland community that, have, that tell an Oakland story. And then, of course, we have films that are submitted and we have different committees that look at the films. And, and then from that point, we just try to mix it all in a, a big pot and try to really make a, a really good stew. David, is there something you would say that really distinguishes the uh, Oakland International Film Festival from other film festivals out there? Um, I would say that the city of Oakland has a, uh, a social justice twist. I think that, you know, Mary Schaff calls it the secret ingredient. I think the Black Panther Party once called it all power to the people. I think that Oakland being, you know, next to Berkeley, that has been one of our centers of, of education and of change. Um, all that is, is, I think, what's a part of our festival. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's definitely what, what I think makes Oakland special as well as uh, yes. like your, your film festival as well. Well, we'd love to have you share a little bit about some of the films that are part of the festival this year. And first, we're going to play a clip from one of the movies. So this is The War and Peace of Tim O'Brien. My children have to live with what they call dad's bad time. So they too will carry the burden of a war. His mood depends on whether he has good or bad writing days. The struggle to make something good. And what a struggle. So David, can you talk a little bit about this particular film, War and Peace of, of Tim O'Brien, and why you uh, wanted to feature it in this festival? Well. War is, you know, it's been said so many times that it is such a waste of human life, of human potential. 
And I think no one else speaks about it more clearly than than the author, uh, Tim O'Brien, who's written several books about it, who actually was in Vietnam, who uh, shares in that film a moment when they were instructed to shoot in a field of trees. And they just stood there, a line of them, just shooting for like six minutes straight with these AKs. And then they were instructed to now walk in that direction. And as they walked in that direction, the only thing that they found was a dead little girl. And, you know, and it continues that this person could leave the United States at maybe, I think it was 17 years old, go off to war, and it became real once he was being bombed at and once bodies were laying around. And so what Tim O'Brien said is that maybe we would take war more seriously if we just changed the word war into killing people. Mm -hmm. And you would think that with all of these improvements in, in civilization and communication and all the things that we have now, we would, we would figure out how we can be peaceful with one another. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds very powerful. And of course, Tim O'Brien also famous for his book, The Things They Carried, which was exactly. a bestseller. And so for listeners yeah. uh, going to attend that movie, I definitely recommend folks read the book. Thank you so much for that. Definitely. Yeah. So is there is there another film you'd like to highlight for our listeners that's going to be showing at the festival? Well, let's see. Promise Through a Lifetime is based on a true story of a professor out of China who started a school in the mountains in a very hard-to-reach area of China. And, you know, part of our festival was that we want to show people that people all over the world are just human beings, like we're human beings, and they want the best for their kids. They want to sacrifice for their children. They want the best for their parents. And it's just really one of those inspiring stories. You see this guy walking down the hill carrying a pole with two bags on each side. And when he returns, he has books in each side of the bag, or he might have food. And eventually he builds this school that teaches these kids. And then when he passes away, one of his old students uh, keeps the school going. Mm. And, you know, and these are some of the sacrifices that generations have made prior to us. I mean, I mean, we drive around and we're like, oh, this road is bumpy. Or we cross the bridge. And we're like, hey, there's too much traffic. But can you imagine how things were before the bridge was built or before we had pavement in the road? So we're all standing on the backs of our ancestors of previous civilization. And, and when our life is over, there'll be those coming behind us as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that universal theme of uh, handoff from generation to generation and sacrifice. Well, uh, the closing night film is definitely very local. It's uh, the American pot story, Oaksterdam. Can you tell our listeners about it and why you chose this particular film to close the festival out? You know, I don't think there's anything more controversial than, than pot. It has so many different names. It has so many different opinions about it being harmful. But here in Oakland, it actually led a, a movement, not only in Oakland, but across the world. Through the mayor's office, through Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Governor Newsom, we see this university called Osterdam erupt. And now they have about 70,000, 80,000 students around the world who are actually learning the benefits of cannabis, of value-added products. Also, cannabis has been used against, you know, people of color. So like in some places, convicts are being released from prison 
for their past offenses with cannabis. So the film really touches on all of those aspects. And we always look forward to really engaging question answer sessions. And so the filmmakers are going to be here. The mayor is going to be here. Governor Newsom's going to be here. And we're also going to have these conversations virtual practically every day of the festival with different experts who, who actually played a role in this movement. And we're hoping that we can really see this as, a, as an industry that could be more beneficial to humankind than, uh, than non-beneficial. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great that you're able to fold in a, you know, question and answer sessions, especially with some of our elected leaders to really Definitely. bring the community together and, and, and educate people about this. And uh, you had mentioned earlier in terms of uh, the film festival that you had were inspired to do this because of your own film that you put together. And so would you, are you encouraging younger African-Americans to get involved in filmmaking? I mean, even given all the uncertainties and challenges around the industry? Well, I am encouraging all young people. I, I mention African-Americans sometimes just because I know what we've been through as it pertains to slavery, as it pertains to discrimination and the redlining that's happened, you know, in our community where the banks don't invest. But really, it's about all the children, you know, and, and being a former teacher of all types of, you know, students, they're your kids and you just want to see them express themselves. And, and filmmaking is a great medium to express yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, so for listeners who want to find out more about the festival and, and get tickets, where can they go? They can go to our website, which is O as in Oakland, I as in international, F as in film, F as in festival.org. All right. Well, we're going to put a link to that on our State of the Bay webpage. But David Roach, thank you so much for joining us on State of the Bay. And congratulations and good luck with this year's film festival. I hope it goes very well for you. Oh, thank you so much. And I do hope you all can make it out. And we would love to have you. And thank you, State of the Bay. And, and keep up the good work. And that is State of the Bay this week. I want to thank all of our guests and our listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. Email us anytime at stateofthebay at KALW.org. And remember, State of the Bay and KALW provide you with a connection to an amazing mix of perspectives, arts and culture from around the Bay, but it's your connection to KALW that makes all of this possible. And please connect us Please connect with us now by calling 1-800-525-9917 or online at KALW.org to make a gift of support. And up next week, we will hear about Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, San Francisco's annual free music festival. And with the rise in book bannings across the country, we will talk to the San Francisco Public Library's head librarian, Michael Lambert, about what it means to have a free library. Tonight's show was produced by Kendra Klang and Chris Nooney. It was engineered by David Kwan. Tariq Tariq Ansari was our board operator. I'm Joe Eskenazi. Good night, and thank you for listening.